Hi everyone and welcome to our Inside Asia M&A podcast series. In this episode we'll be taking a look at India and in particular some of the themes and trends that are driving private capital investment and M&A. My name is Jamie McLaren and I'm a partner in our Singapore corporate team. I'm joined today by two excellent guests. Firstly we have Pratiba Jain. Pratiba is the General Counsel and Head of Corporate Affairs for Everstone Capital, a leading India-focused private equity firm. Joining Pratiba is Sid Shukla, a partner in our London office with a focus on M&A and private capital in India, and like me, Sid is a member of our broader India group across the firm. M&A activity in India was extremely high in the second half of 2021, and the first quarter of 2022 set a four-year high of $30.3 billion in activity. Pratiba, what do you see as some of the factors driving this current growth in M&A? I believe that the India M&A story is really the India macro story growth right now. If you look at it from a macroeconomy perspective, the key trends that are very important to note Firstly, India is a year away from being the sixth largest economy in the world, overtaking the United Kingdom. Secondly, it is home to a fifth of the world's youth population. We'll have the youngest population anywhere in the world, even more than China, which is the most populous country right now. And thirdly, India is ahead of any other nation in digital financial transactions. The digital penetration in India is 47% as of 2022. And there are more handsets being used in rural India than in cities. If you see these trends, you can understand the interest of global investors in looking at India's future growth. All of this adds up to a very promising and very robust M&A activity in the coming few years. Sid, how do these trends drive or impact M&A? What impact are you seeing on deals? I think if you are looking at non-macro factors, I would pull up three key drivers which we are seeing on deals. I think the first one is more focused on shareholder value and returns and exploring opportunities to transform businesses. Globally, we are seeing some of this in form of breaker bids, all share combinations and mergers, and disposal of non-core assets. If you were to pick up on the non-core assets itself, you know, you look at some of the larger deals in the last few months in India, they all have an important component of that. For many businesses in India, these are providing opportunity for what is described as transformational businesses and growth. So it's not just business making acquisitions to grow their current scope, but also to transform it. And actually, if you look at the figures, such deals are now gone for approximately 40% of the total deals in India, which are often in the digital and renewable space. I think the second driver from my perspective is around valuations. During COVID, we saw opportunistic and distressed deals globally, which were driving the MA activity globally and also in India. I think that theme has continued in my view. Interestingly, I think the third driver from my perspective is exits. If you're an international PE sponsor, healthy exits is quite a defining parameter of market confidence. A few years ago, when we would talk to private equity houses, they would say that there isn't much confidence because of lack of exit opportunities. This, to my mind, has changed now. If you look at the Indian stock market itself and the trends in the last 12 to 18 months and the fact that the market is fitted to take over the London Stock Exchange in the next year or so, as for the commentators, that, that's quite telling and shows the confidence in the market. Thanks very much, Sid. You mentioned 
private equity there. Sat in Singapore, private equity and private capital more generally, there's just a huge buzz right now from here for investors looking at India in particular. Pratiba, is that something you think is going to continue to be important for Indian M&A and Indian transactional activity? Oh, absolutely. I think given how choppy the public markets are in India and the appetite of Indian businesses, both startups and uh, mature businesses such as Reliance and Adani to grow. And we've seen some you know, very big transactions, both in the startup space, India has created more unicorns than China as of today. And, you know, we've seen the Indian business houses such as Reliance and Adani really picking up significant assets from the Indian market. And all of this will significantly require private capital to grow. Private capital as an asset class has seen a tremendous growth as well as appreciation and understanding both by Indian entrepreneurs and businesses and the government itself. Um, There is a good reflection of that was this year's financial budget. The finance minister herself set up a committee, the private equity and VC committee, to look at how they can further channelize this asset class and grow it in India. They've also set up their own quasi-sovereign wealth fund, NIF, which is $6 billion platform. So from a decade ago where the private capital asset class was you know, still new and still finding its feet, today you know, it's well-established and with India's growth story, I think you're going to see pretty much everybody trying to have some amount of play in India. In that last decade or so, as private capital's grown in importance, have there been any regulatory changes and, and how's the regulatory landscape changed in that time? I wonder, Sid, do you want to comment on that briefly and then maybe we can ask Pratiba as well? I think India has definitely, over the last five to seven years, seen significant changes to its regulatory regime and the legal framework, broadly speaking. If you take examples of the FGI regime itself, that's been relaxed and has, and the government has continued to relax it over the last three or four years, which is just an, a trend opposite to where some of the other countries are, which have introduced new legislation and measures, in particular following COVID. I think Indian regulators and agencies have also become, to my mind, more proactive and responsive. You know, FDI approval processes are much more swifter. If you look at Indian securities regulator, they have been pretty fast and proactive in assisting with some of the bigger IPOs of late. So there is a general trend towards, as we see it, relaxing the regime, making it much more streamlined and creating a better atmosphere around governance as well. And Pratiba, is that your experience as well? Oh, definitely. You know, India's moved up in the ease of doing business rankings. The government's very focused on, you know, streamlining regulatory regime in India. It does sort of raise the question of where the capital is, is coming from. Where, where do you see the most active corridors of investment into India? Um, so right now, if you see the big deals and very active participation in the private equity space, you'll see the Canadian pension funds, the Middle East sovereign wealth funds, and then some of the European, especially the European funds in the impact space. On the VC side, you know, again, we've seen the unicorn story has come about because of, again, foreign investments from likes of Tiger Global, SoftBank, Sequoia, so global funds. Domestic capital is still in its nascent stage. There is a move to get the pension funds in India 
to start investing in this alternative asset class. The regulations have been enabled, but the investments have not started yet. We have worked with our clients on some of the most high-profile and significant cross-border deals and disputes in Indian history, from Indian businesses seeking global expansion to international organisations building an operational presence in India and private capital investors investing there. Our versatile practice comprises over 40 partners in our global network. We are ranked Band 1 in Chambers for Corporate M&A amongst the international firms that operate in India. To find out more about our India practice, please visit the link in our podcast description. Now, back to our discussion with Pratibha and Sid. What would be the hottest sector or the hottest space for these, these investors? Where are they really focusing their interests right now? So tech and healthcare, I would say, especially post-COVID, right? So whether it's edutech, fintech, agritech's picking up now, there's also government focus on it. Government themselves have announced financing for sunrise sectors. And then you know, pharma and healthcare, health tech is huge. Pharmacy, you know, which we are in, invested in, we've seen grow by leaps and bounds. One of my observations on investment into India is that the landscape is a little bit different. So instruments and structures we see in other jurisdictions are less common features in India, particularly when you get into that hybrid space between equity and debt. Is that something you see, Sid? If you are going into India, I think structuring is one of the key aspects that one needs to look at. And that's driven by uh, the FDI laws. You know, often we see in jurisdictions that simple, either equity or debt. But in the Indian market, there are hybrid instruments that are there. It's not just as simple as FDI. There are other areas and rules around, you know, what constitutes a foreign portfolio investment and how does that work with FDI. You also then look at debt and debt-related instruments, and often you end up looking at some specific legislations and rules which govern those are, for example, around ECB lending. So there is definitely a question on structure that needs to be kept in mind. I think the one other thing I would say is we often, when we look at India, we look at things at a more sort of a federal, central level. But depending on which sector you are in, foreign investors should keep in mind that there are rules and laws applying not only at the federal level, but also at the state level, which could impact deal execution and also from an integration point of view post-completion. Pratiba, when Everstone are looking at investments into India, what do you work through when you're looking at that? What are the sort of key considerations when you're scoping out a deal? We are sector agnostic fund by definition, but... Over the years, we've developed expertise and realized the value of healthcare as a vertical, IT as a vertical, and consumers as a vertical. So if you see our fund two, fund three investments, they are significantly in these three spaces. And then we are opportunistic about the other deals that come through. We are a control or slash buyout strategy. Jamie said, I actually, based on your experience, Globally, I had a question for you vis-a-vis India because, um, you know, I don't really see the comparative aspect anymore. How are you seeing the Indian markets perform vis-a-vis the global markets in terms of attracting or being attractive for foreign investment and, you know, some of the key challenges that we need to be mindful of? From Singapore, we get quite a good insight on the Asian perspective for private capital in particular. And I think there's a few trends that are all going to really benefit India in the long term, is my guess. First of all, a lot of the big funds, the pension funds, the buyout funds, the the big VC funds, 
they're all generally trying to increase their exposure to Asia and looking to put more of their global portfolio into Asian investments. That's a recurring theme that we see. And then that means they then look at the Asian market and particularly funds, private capital funds at the, the higher end of the value spectrum that are trying to do larger deals. Southeast Asia can be challenging sometimes because it's quite a fragmented market and some of the economies in the region are not as mature or as deep as others. You've then got, depending on how the fund is structured, the possibility to invest into China, to invest into India, and those that include Australia as part of their Asia-Pacific platform, they may look at Australia. Australia has a very mature market and that can lead to quite high pricing, I think, for funds. So when they're looking for value, it leaves them with China and India as the two key market in Asia. And the buzz right now is definitely around India. And there's a real focus from a whole host of funds on India. And so I think you'll have a lot of competitions in, is <laughs> my guess, Pratiba. <laughs> yeah, there'll just be more and more, more and more private capital flown into India, is my take. I see that as deepening the markets. Bring it on. Sid, I don't know what you see from London. I think from my perspective, I've been tracking the Indian M&A market for now a decade, really, and quite closely. Last two or three years have clearly shown that the deals that are happening in India and the valuations that you're seeing are not something that you've seen previously. I think if you look at 2019, 2021, almost every year you have a record year for Indian M&A. And I think there are two or three reasons for it. One is, I think, at a global level, there are geopolitical tailwinds which are helping India, uh, where India offers an alternative investment destination to China. I think there is a second aspect, which is around some of the policy measures that India took a few years ago or started yielding benefits. I mean, just to take an example of the energy sector and renewables, you know, the government decided a few years ago that they need to transition to lower emission electricity systems with amb some certain ambition, ambitious targets. That has, if you look at the last two years, that's resulted in a significant inbound M&A activity in the renewable sector. You can say the same about the startup program in India called Startup India program. That has resulted in, Pratiba, you described a significant number of unicorns over the last two years, and those have driven that growth. I think the one thing that does make an important feature in all of this from a, from a lawyer's perspective is the governance regime and the relaxation and streamlining of the rules. India a few years ago was a very promoter-led economy, which made many of the international investors quite skeptical, to my mind, uh, going into India. That has changed over the last four or five years, and that's primarily down to improving and bettering corporate governance standards. And that, is, that has created that confidence that the Indian market, from a legal point of view, is in the right spot. Pratiba and Jamie, I'd be very interested to hear your thoughts on how you see the M&A outlook for India for the rest of the year and indeed for years to come and what you think would be the key drivers and things to look out for from your perspective. So like I said, you know, I'm very optimistic just given the macro trends and given the amount of activity and then said you added the geopolitical considerations that are looking positive for India, at least as of now. I think as long as the Indian government stays course on regulatory reforms and keeps promoting this asset class, which is very, very important, almost fundamental to India's growth. Like if you see China's growth, you will see similar trends. I think it looks really robust and I'm very excited about this I would say the next level of journey for private capital in India. 
I would completely echo your enthusiasm, Pratiba. I think Indian private capital is going to go from strength to strength and Indian M&A more broadly. Said, I don't know what your take on it is. Would you agree with, with our optimism? I would say certainly agree with that. I think last year, corporates focused with ever more urgency on M&A as a response to the imperative of building resilience and fast-tracking you know, fundamental business transformation and private capital was a key feature and an important feature to fuel that growth. I think as we move into, at least in some parts of the world, into inflationary worries, I do wonder whether that might have an impact on M&A or might that actually expedite some of the M&A, but that's a question for us to see. Pratiba, Sid, thank you so much for the insightful discussion today. It's been really, really good. I've really enjoyed it. And thank you to listeners for listening. If you have any questions or comments on this topic, we'd love to hear from you. And please be sure to tune in to the next episode of our M&A podcast series when we'll be looking at APAC's evolving digital infrastructure and what it means for deals in the region. Thank you for listening. <laughs>